Welcome back to another episode of Gems and Jokes with me, Ariel Tivon of Tivon Fine Jewelry. Well guys, those who know me well know that I am far from being the most politically correct person. And I certainly don't shy away from controversial topics. So if you tuned in for some easy listening, you're on the wrong channel. Today is going to be controversial. I am going to tackle headfirst one of the hottest topics out there today. In all walks of life, but especially in the gems and jewelry industries, there is a big push to adopt and profess to have an ethical, responsible and sustainable product. Now I'm all for positive change and impact, but who exactly is deciding what is ethical? Who determines what is responsible and sustainable? Are we blindly being pushed in a direction without actually questioning who is really benefiting? But far more importantly, who are we hurting in this process? Is it possible that by taking the so-called moral high ground, we're actually causing more damage and hurting more people in the process? As you can tell, I'm not my humorous self because this topic is serious and it seriously gets me going. At the very minimum, you should all be asking some serious questions after this podcast. If you've listened to any of my previous podcasts, you would have heard to what degree this industry is not only self-policing, but how far people are going to keep their word and act in an ethical manner, and what protections have been put in place to ensure products are sourced responsibly. And now, someone out there is telling us that if we don't adhere to certain rules that some arbitrary person or people have determined are so-called the right way to behave, we'll all be branded immoral. And now you've got this whole Pandora controversy that's just come out. Essentially, Pandora have come out saying that they're using lab-created diamonds and somehow their product is more ethical. Well, of course, there's been a huge backlash from the jewelry industry, from the diamond industry, because somehow they've been branded unethical just because they're not using lab-created. Seems quite rich from a company that made billions and billions of dollars using materials that they now deem unfit or somehow unethical. Well, as you can tell, this really gets me upset. When I first set out to do this podcast, I had a rough idea and plan in mind. The plan was as follows. Educate, entertain and have a laugh along the way, share stories, make a small difference and in my wildest dreams, make a positive impact. So today I'm bringing on an amazing guest to help shed some light on this very serious topic and what is actually happening out there on the ground. Today's guest is none other than Hugh Brown, who is a world-renowned photographer and who, amongst several projects, has decided to specifically focus on documenting and investigating the mining sector. Hugh describes himself as a documentary photographer because his goal is to document our world by taking important and meaningful photographs that will make a meaningful impact to this planet. I have to tell you guys, in my opinion, he's definitely achieving just that. I'm just going to say that this guy's photographs are immense. I mean, they are stunning, but they carry with them a weight, a gravitas. They have a starkness that has you mesmerized, but at the same time has your brain seriously spinning with all sorts of questions. Today, I hope that this podcast and hopefully you and I can actually tick that box of making a difference and a positive impact in this world. So let's get going and let's talk to Hugh and find out about his life's work and what is happening in the world of so-called ethical and sustainable and responsible mining. 
G'day, Hugh. Thanks so much for agreeing to join me on my podcast. The honor is seriously mine. Before we start, I just want to tell our listeners and address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that Hugh is an Aussie and against my better judgment, but for the sake of keeping everything civil, we have agreed not to discuss anything sports related. And yeah, we'll just, we'll try and keep it civil. Now, Hugh, in the preamble to our talk, I gave the listeners a bit of an intro as to who you are, but I just want to delve a little bit deeper if I may. So you're born and raised in Australia. Correct. Would you say you had a regular sort of family life, very outdoorsy, going into nature, into the environment? Yeah, look, always loved the outdoors. Grew up in the Victorian snowfields. We used to ski Saturday and Sunday pretty much every weekend. And then went to school in Melbourne and I found myself playing on the golf course as much as at school. So absolutely, I love nature, love the outdoors. And I read at one point you were actually studying law. So once again, on behalf of planet Earth and uh, (laughs) maybe even Greta Thunberg, who her and I are not on speaking terms and anyone else who's seen your work I think we have to just say thank God there's a one less lawyer in the world and b that you found your calling as a photographer how did the whole photography thing actually start yeah fell into photography it was not something that had ever been a career ambition so I was working in Melbourne at the time had a meeting in Perth flew over and decided to do something a bit radical and took some leave and traveled up to a place called Broome in the Kimberley which is Kimberley, the broom's about 2,200 kilometres north of Perth. And I was knew no one up there, loved the Kimberley. Kimberley sort of being one of the, the wildest natural environments on the planet. And I got up there and I thought, this is pretty cool. I wouldn't mind living here. But there was sort of quite a bit of trepidation as well because it would have meant moving 4,300 k's from Melbourne up to, to live there. And I didn't know anyone there. So I decided that I was going to quit my job in Melbourne, which was I was management consultant, and that whatever happened, I, I would stick with the decisions because I knew that when I got back to Melbourne that there was a, a real risk that I'd get sucked back and get comfortable in my old job and all of that sort of stuff. So I flew back to Melbourne and did another trip to Broome to tee up some work and then flew back to Melbourne, chucked my job in and, and then drove across the Gibson Desert to Broome back in, that was back in 1998. I, I had this awful feeling that I'd get sucked back to Melbourne and that I wouldn't be in the Kimberley for very long. So every weekend I would go out and see somewhere different. And quite often that would mean driving sometimes up to two and a half thousand kilometers in a weekend. And I just had a look around. And as I said, I'd probably taken 20 rolls of film in my life to that point and started to do things with the camera. People said you should do something with your photography. But the problem was that everything that I'd ever done seriously in my life to that point, music, whatever else, I'd ended up hating. So I was conscious that I didn't want to kill my love of photography at the time by turning it into a profession. And so I went through this sort of metamorphosis of maybe three, four years where I weighed up, do I want to become a photographer? You know, will it take away the enjoyment? And then in, I think, 2004, I decided to go full time with it. And I have to ask because at one point I used to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers and I did a complete about turn and changed location. In my case, it actually worked out because my dad was happy because I sort of carried on his legacy. But at any point that your parents think, what is this guy on? What is he doing? Ditching law? Has he 
been in the outback a little bit too long and he's 2,200 kilometer drives and his brain is leaving this all for photography. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I copped all of that from, you know, people that knew me well and there weren't many people that thought I was making the right decision back at that time. And it just felt like the right thing to do. I just had this love of adventure, I suppose. So I just loved the the challenge and the, I loved the harshness of the Australian outback, I suppose. So I stuck with it and, you know, I was probably lucky as well because I my background had been in mining when I was consulting and before that. And Western Australia, where I live now, is on the cusp of one of the biggest mining booms in, probably the biggest mining boom in history. So it was a natural sort of fit that I should start photographing some of those mines. And some people are lucky to see, you know, the gestation of a, a single major mine in their lifetime. I've worked with some of the biggest players in the industry over the last 17 years, documenting the birth of some pretty amazing companies. And I presume you use digital equipment, yes? Yeah, good question. I'm a documentary photographer. What I mean by documentary is that I like to document aspects of the world that are going to be subject to rapid change. So in the context of landscape, I like to document aspects of the landscape. It might be, you know, the Pilbara is an area I've focused on a lot that's been subject to significant human impact. And so I pick aspects of a landscape in the Pilbara and just, I'd, you know, sit out bush for, in one on one occasion, I sit out bush for 74 days waiting for four photos. And then I focus on aspects of the mining industry around the world, large-scale mining, small-scale mining, artisanal mining that are changing significantly as well. So to answer your question, for my landscape work, I still use film and I use a German film camera called a Linhof Technorama. And that's still my favourite camera. It's all completely manual. There's about 20 different ways you can stuff up and you don't know if you've stuffed up until you get the film back, the process film back. And then for my commission work and people and mining around the world, I use digital. I think part of the reason for me asking that question was today every person and their mate has a uh, camera on their phone and running around taking literally pictures of anything it's almost like you, you can't actually enjoy a meal unless you've taken 50 different shots of it from 50 different angles do you ever feel that in a world which is obsessed now with taking pictures of literally everything that there's almost too much noise or too much volume at some point where it drowns out some of the messages you're trying to bring through with your photography Certainly, yes, certainly um, the sheer volume of photos has, I think, diminished the impact of the medium over the last probably 15 years or so. I think a, a big issue that goes concurrently with that is the move from people to want to manipulate images artificially once they come out of the camera. And to me, the concern that I have with that is it's a bit like I think, you know, when I was listening to your podcast the other day and you were talking about synthetic gems vis-a-vis natural gems, it can be very difficult to tell those apart at times, but one's a, a true gem and the other's sort of something else. And it's the same with photography. And so people have lost trust in the medium to a large extent as well. And there's always been imperfections around photography, but you've got the art of photography and then you've got graphic manipulation. One's photography to me, the other's not photography, but unfortunately they get lumped into this big bucket and people call it all photography. But on the other hand, having looked at the type of photos you take and the sheer starkness, they stand out and for all the right reasons, if you don't mind me saying. Now, before we turn to probably the most important part, which is your work. Personally, I think photography is a seriously underrated and underappreciated art form. I recently watched a movie, a great movie with Ed Harris on Netflix 
Netflix, which is called Kodachrome. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about the life of a photographer. There's a salient moment within the film where he describes his life's work and he states photographers are preservationists. They preserve and record history by freezing time to imprint what has actually transpired. Do you feel sometimes that way about your work? Yeah, it's a good question. I suppose as I've gotten older, I realize how minute I am in the universe. So there's two aspects to that. The first is uh, I work in a place called the Pilbara in, here in Western Australia. It's one of the oldest landscapes on the planet. And we have the things called stromatolites, which are some of the earliest fossilized evidence of life on Earth. We have the oldest known stromatolite on, on Earth uh, in a place near Marble Bar. And it's been dated to 3.49 billion years. Now, to give you some context, if human life started, say, life on Earth started 3.6 billion years ago. And if you put that in the context of a one-hour movie and where life started at the start of the one hour, human beings came along in the last half second of that one-hour documentary. And so screwed we up realize, everything. Screwed up everything and you realise how, <laughs> how insignificant we are. And then the second aspect, how long realistically do our images last for? And I've thought about this a lot. So do they last for 50 years or 100 years when they get lost? And so when I'm dealing with corporates, for example, one of the things I'm really insistent on, because there's a big push for them to get copyright these days, I never give up copyright. because, And part of the reason I don't give up copyright is because the corporate lifespan these days is so short quite often that things just get chucked in the bin when companies go bust or get taken over and all of that sort of stuff. Whereas I know that at least when I have it, I've got control over my archive and that I'm going to do my best to ensure that these images are preserved in perpetuity. Right. So let's get to the work you're doing. Now, you decided to focus specifically on documenting and capturing what's going on in the mining industry. That includes gold mining, rare earths, tin, copper, amongst others. Why did you specifically choose the mining industry and its impacts? I suppose to, yeah, just to swing back to where we were earlier, my background was in mining. So it was just like there was a natural fit. I understood the industry to some extent. And so therefore it was easier for me to sort of go and talk to potential clients. And that was really how I got started. It was as simple as that. And then back in 2006, um, one of my major clients said to me, do you want to go to Africa? And I'd never really had much of an interest in going to Africa at that stage. And I rang a mate of mine who I studied law with, who'd become a photographer as well. I said, do you want to go to, to Africa, Pato? And he said, yeah, that'd be good. So when I thought about it, I thought, no, bugger, I'll go. And it was only a, a two-week trip. It was a really quick trip to Ghana. But during that 2006 trip to Ghana, I was fascinated because I saw these, what illegal miners in Ghana are called Galamsay. And I saw these illegal miners mining beside the roadside. And I was intrigued. And I just, I was fascinated. I you know, got out of the car numerous times, went and had a look. My driver was concerned because there's elements of crime in there and all of that. But I was asked back by the same client back in 2008 and that same client sort of managed to team up with a heap of other clients. So it was a much longer trip. And since then, I've been going back to Africa regular, done a lot of trips over there, spent probably two years of my life in, in Africa. And I was fascinated by the visual picture of these people in the mining because it took me back to visions and pictures I'd seen of the gold fields here in Australia back in the 1850s. And, and I suppose that's how I got started. Now, I just want to stop here for a second because one thing that rings true is that I pretty much look for the positive in everything, but I 
I almost laugh about everything because that's just me. I like to look for the humor in every situation. But I have to say, when I watched your two YouTube clips, uh, which is your latest project, The Cruelest Earth, I probably got choked up because, you know, just the, the visuals are incredible. I mean, you see these guys carrying 50 kilo bags of sulfur up from a volcano in Indonesia. You see guys neck deep digging in mud pits in Burkina Faso and Guinea, you know, to mine for gold. And yet you see these guys actually some of the time smiling. And I think the reason it got me choked up is because, I mean, it, it's just so human. It captured so beautifully both the human endeavor to exist in all situations and to strive for a better life. But it's juxtaposed with just the most horrific, what perceivably, at least to me and to most people who live in regular sort of Western comfortable situations, the most horrific working conditions. And these people are living through it every day. So just tell us a little bit more about your Cruelest Earth project that you're doing. After I saw what I'd seen back in 2006, 2008, I, was, I did a really long trip to Africa back in 2000 and, you know, in 2010. And I got home and I was talking to a guy I knew in advertising. And he said, why don't you do a book on this? Because I was, mentioned the idea of a book, but I, I had no idea how I was going to fund it. I knew the project would be difficult. I knew it would be dangerous potentially, but I had no idea how difficult, how dangerous. And I had no idea how I was going to market it as well. I just, because I, I couldn't see a market for the project but instinct told me to get stuck in and and so i got stuck in uh, i rang a couple of clients in ghana i think it was i said look this is the idea i want to do a book i said well, could you spot me some airfares and some accommodation and all that sort of stuff to get started and first part of that project was done in Burkina faso back in 2010 and i look back at my approach and all of that to the whole to the subject to how i did the shoot and to how i work now and i think geez what an amateur i remember i remember my fixer i met at the airport and he just just didn't shut up talking the whole time and half the time he was just going on and on about he's worried about us getting killed and all of that sort of stuff uh, just and something gotta, trivial like <laughs> getting killed yeah and, and i was i got a pretty good good radar for that sort of stuff and i hadn't picked up that vibe and i said look i said if you don't want to do it i said i'll drop you back to wagadougou the capital of Burkina, and i'll find someone else and i don't think he thought that i would do that i actually followed through and said right we're going back to wagga dropped him off and his ego was seriously offended and i got another guy who still works works with me to this day a guy called abdu who's tough as nails doesn't take any shit from anyone and just as honest as the day is long so that's how i got started and then back in those early days the internet there wasn't a lot of stuff on artisanal mining back then like there is now there's, there's still there's lots of stuff now but it's still if you really want to find the unique stuff now often you don't find it on the internet so i remember the next project that i shot was um, working in an active volcano in indonesia they, these guys carrying um you said 50 kilo bags of sulfur they're actually carrying average loads of 70 kilos i'm sorry and, i'm sorry um, for understating i mean I, I think if i lifted 20 kilos I, I, i'd be crying but you know, it's, <laughs> yeah absolutely and that show, shows you that's the difference that's an extra 20 kilos not just 20 kilos <laughs> um yeah look so and i learned about indonesia when i had an exhibit at uh, in Daba in cape town back in i think it was like 2010 or 2011 and that was sort of how i found places early on and then the further i've gone on the more my research methods have honed and i really search out those places that other places people don't necessarily know about so easily certainly i had never heard of some of the places that you've captured just incredible pictures and i have to say actually look 
looking at some of the clips and some of the images that you've taken, I got angry. But in truth, I got angry at myself because I just see the way these guys are working. And I think about the nonsense that I complain about. And I, comparatively, I have it so good. Do you ever listen to these people from mainly Western developed countries and just who whine about their lives and how hard it is and how society is being so unfair? And do you ever just think, you know, shut the fuck up, <laughs> you ungrateful <laughs> sods? And, you know, if you only knew what a real struggle, really hardworking conditions are and what it takes to feed your family and just simply exist. Yeah, it's a real struggle when I, every time pretty much I fly back into Australia, I struggle with that. I struggle seeing, you know, my hometown Perth looks as though it's been cleaned with a toothbrush every time I come back in. I struggle listening to the quality of debate back here, this sense of entitlement that we have certainly here in Australia. I suspect it's probably replicated around the world. And hearing people talk about things like air conditioning as being a human right, I heard someone on radio one day and I'm just thinking like these people have no perspective that they live in a bubble that is literally the top 1% of global wealth and we're still complaining we haven't got enough. I think that's human nature. We always just, we're a bunch of complainers until we put in somebody else's shoes. So I had a discussion with a colleague of mine in one of my podcasts about the sapphire and ruby trade and specifically about Burma, Myanmar uh, today. Now, as you know, it's the mo one of the most sought after rubies are the Burmese ones. And currently the regime is doing some horrific things, no two ways about it. But interestingly enough, he tells me that the biggest impact of the boycotts, especially by the US, but these boycotts, which are supposed to be trying to punish the regime, are actually the impacts are having the most devastating effects on the artisanal miner because actually most of the ruby industry that exists within Burma is not in the hands of politicians or the regime. It's in small artisanal miners who have been doing it literally for centuries. Does your experience, I don't know if you've ever been to Burma specifically, but other places that you've been, is your experience pretty much the same that by us trying to do good, that actually the biggest impact on those that really actually need our help rather than the people that we're trying to punish or boycott? Yeah, so I've worked in Burma a couple of times. It's probably one of the most difficult countries I've ever worked in. How so? There. Why difficult? It was difficult because the surveillance from the state was just off the charts. So that meant at its most basic level, the, the language barrier in Burma is incredibly difficult. And so I had this, I met this fixer in the hotel because I just literally jumped on a bus and went to Magway region in central Burma. And there was this guy who spoke semi-English and he offered to be my fixer. Now, what I learned at the end of the second trip was that this guy who was, he'd been in, in probably thrice daily contact with the authorities because the phone had just ring and like you could never understand what he was saying or anything like that because you don't know who's ringing or it's the same person and, but I sort of had my, my doubts and um, he was feeding back everything to the authorities I didn't know whether there was a video camera surveillance going on in my room when I was sleeping at night I didn't feel safe on the second trip that I was out of the country until I was on the tarmac in in Thailand so what ended up happening um, the first trip I went to photograph artisanal oil in Burma that was incredibly difficult because it was controlled by the oil barons in Yangon. There were a big Chinese interest in the oil field because a large oil field and the Chinese were looking at it as possible for you know, large-scale production. Um, you had lots of government. We, and I do everything by the book when I go into these countries. I don't try to fly, fly below the radar.
radar. I don't try to pretend I'm doing one thing and, and do the other. I, I try to be completely upfront with what I'm doing. You know, there were probably 20 undercover cops in the oil field. You could pick them out after a while. Yeah, I remember taking photos of the trucks coming and going because a black market oil field and the phone rang. We were told to get out of there fast because one of the oil barons said, you can't be photographing trucks that officially don't exist, et cetera, et cetera. And there were heaps of them. So I went home and I'd, I'd heard about the gem fields in Pakan in um, Kachin State, which you've probably heard of. Um, there was a big uh, landslip there, I think, um, in the last six to 12 months and about 120 people were killed. And then there were the ruby fields that you're talking about north of Mandalay. And my fixer rang, rang me and said, look, I reckon I can get you into Pakan. So I jumped on a plane and flew over and took a 28-hour train ride from uh, Yangon, uh, from maybe Mandalay to... Nagina and this train was like you had to see it to believe it was like a bucking bull the whole time and literally warplanes taking off from Nagina while I was there because there was this civil war going on and quite often in conflict minerals these days what you have is conflict minerals are not as overt these days that you have guns in the mines but what you have is you'll have the you know one side will control the road and so they charge taxation and taxation is how they get their rents from the gems and then you'll have the other side control the gems and they'll be selling in in Burma up in Pakan they'll be selling those to the Chinese and all of that sort of stuff but I spent 10 days trying to get into Pakan because I told I was able to get in there I tried every angle I could think of you know one army colonel we met secretly in a hotel there on one occasion he said he could get me in but I didn't trust that he you know he wanted obviously cash to get us in there and I didn't trust that that was going to work and I, I it just didn't fit with my model of transparency and in the end we tried so many angles I was getting so frustrated I said to the fixer I said look you go to Napidor, the capital, and I'll go to Mandalay and we'll work it from two different angles. And I'll never forget the look on his face. His face just dropped like he'd seen a ghost. And I later realised that was because the game was up, that he'd been selling me a dummy, sort of leading me in all these different directions. Like to give you an example, Aung San Suu Kyi's office sent a letter trying to block us going into Pakan. And I was staggered. I think here I am just some photographer and one of the highest ranking people in the country has sent through a letter blocking our visit. Now she didn't refer to us specifically, but I was the only foreigner there wanting to go to mm. Pakan. So there was no one else that it could have related to. So uh, in the end, I was so jacked off with the whole thing. And I was jacked off with the government and I just didn't tell anyone what I was doing I just went completely below the radar and I jumped on a bus and then took a bus a 24-hour bus ride through to Yangon I think it was got out of the country as quickly as I could because I thought I was riding a really fine line that if I didn't get out of there I might not get out of there for quite some time good god the ruby fields you're talking about, I was really interested in those. Um, they're winding down to some extent. I'm, I'm not sure it's because of grade or, you know, lack of fines there now, but I would have loved to have gotten into those ruby fields, but that was told there wasn't much there to photograph at the time. Burma was just, the people are lovely. They're just amazing. To come back to the other part of your question, I was photographing these oil scavengers in the oil field. So basically women that were going around with buckets and rags and they were scooping up oil off the top of mud sludge or um, swamps or even oil sitting just coagulating in, in the middle of the, just mud. And they were scraping up, putting in these buckets and they're going back, filtering it out and then selling it to vendors. And it took some time to build rapport there. And the reason that was, was because they were concerned that I was going to say, look at these people, they're destitute, poverty stricken, they're, they're so poorly off. But the reality was they were really, really proud of the work that they were doing. And they're actually making quite good money relative to, say, people in the fields and the farms. They actually loved their work. And the way that I ended up breaking those walls down was I grabbed their buckets 
one day and grabbed some rags and I jumped into the mud and sludge and started scooping up the oil with them. And then I think they realised I wasn't some Westerner there just to sort of make them look like idiots. I was, I genuinely valued their company and appreciated that they loved their work. Well, that's literally putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. I think that one of the biggest messages that we all need to think about is with this whole ethical and responsible sourcing is not to preach until we truly understand what the other person or the artisanal miners or whoever it is that we think is being put down or you know being treated harshly until we truly stand in their shoes and experience what they experience we're in no position to actually dictate or, or preach how they should be living their lives and putting a label of whether it's responsible and ethical it's completely wrong these people make their own choices and you can say yeah well it's out of necessity but if we want to make their choices more acceptable to us. So if we want those people to be able to choose between alternatives that we consider acceptable, then we've got to put the resources and the plan in place that enables them to transition away from what they're doing now to an alternate source of employment and that enables if their kids are going to go to school, then how are the parents going to afford those kids to go to school? We need to accommodate those things in our planning, not just be looking at traceability and certification and all these other buzz terms. The other part of it is that we need to be working to change the model for the people on the ground so that they benefit from it. And one of the issues and concerns that I have in the responsible sourcing space at the moment is that there's so many opaque objectives and goals that it's impossible to sift through. And, and I've been around this industry now for quite some time, and it took me a long time to realize how complex the industry is that's evolved around artisanal mining. And I'm talking industry outside of the miners. So the responsible sourcing industry, you've got auditors, you've got whoever else running around, all these vocations that have risen up and getting paid in Western dollars and all of that sort of stuff. What I'm trying to say is that you've got this huge responsible sourcing industry that's evolved involving the sovereign governments, the biggest companies in the world. And all of these different players have got different agendas. So if the agendas of all of these people are different, how can you then expect the result on the ground to be optimal for the artisanal miners? Because you've got governments that are sort of going in on the basis of wanting to provide aid to these countries. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to shore up lithium deposits for the growing electric vehicle industry. Or you've got companies that are trying to, in an era of declining access to mineralization around the world, because all bodies are getting deeper and there's less of them and all that sort of stuff. You've got large-scale companies saying, right, we want to formalize all this, but the real agenda is that it gives them access to mineral deposits that might not have otherwise had access to. And this is where the complexity lies. We're at the top of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs telling people at the bottom how they should be living. And our agendas are, if they're not aligned, how can we possibly expect to get a line result at the bottom of the pyramid i think another nice way of saying it is the more things change the more they say the same yeah what i'm saying what i will say is a lot of good people out there that genuinely concerned but the waters are muddied and how can you expect an optimal result if the objectives are not aligned i'm with you Hugh, i want to tackle something very controversial head on which is something that you bring up in your Cruelest Earth project, the subject of big mining versus artisanal mining and the impact of human life. Just try and elaborate for us. I've seen the interaction of the two, which not a lot of people have seen. And what I mean by that, I've worked on numerous projects where the largely greenfields, large-scale mining exploration, and what will happen is 
the sovereign government, whether it be Burkina Faso or wherever else, has seen a lot of artisanal miners in one location. I've seen some locations where there's been 10,000, another location, probably 50,000 artisanal miners in one location. So they see all these artisanal miners and they'll realise that there's obviously an all body there of some sort or there's a resource there of some sort. They'll put exploration leases out to tender to international you know, mining companies. Those mining companies will come in and then there'll be a, a period of coexistence between the large-scale guys and the artisanals because everything at that point, often these international companies coming in, they've never seen anything like it either, so they're fascinated. And there'll be coexistence for a period of time and then the large-scale guys and the artisanals will get sick of each other and then the gendarmes will be brought in to get rid of the artisanals and usually a couple of people get killed, two or three people get killed and then the artisanals will be booted on and, and move on to somewhere else. So I see the benefits of large-scale mining for, for countries in that it brings a, you know, a tax stream, there's a lot of employment and all of those types of things. But then I see the benefits of artisanal mining and so with, with large-scale mining, um, once those operations move through to uh, becoming a, a running mine, then a lot of the money that is earned by those large-scale mines goes offshore. In the case of artisanal mining, it tends to circulate very much within the local economy because artisanal miners, they get all this money, and what do they do? They go and spend it because they've got nothing else. They can't save it. They can't put it in the bank very easily in those those sorts of places. The other thing that artisanal mining does as well is that it, it provides a means of skill mobility, So, or skill development's a better word. So a lot of these artisanal guys... because they come from such a poor background, and I'm talking women and men, even if a large-scale mine came in, not a lot of these people could get jobs in that large-scale mining company because they haven't got any education, they haven't got any training. And as you know, in the third world, there's a lot of people competing for not many jobs. So the higher skilled workers within those third world economies tend to be the ones that get most of the employment with large-scale mines. In the case of um, artisanal mining, what happens is that they'll be exposed to a lot of different things. There's mining itself. There could be the crushing and screening side of things. It could be as a vendor in one of the artisanal mining villages. It could be as in, in a form of banking. It could be in a form of bookkeeping. They learn all these things on the job. So it provides a, a rapid means for them to acquire skills that they wouldn't otherwise acquire. These are some of the challenges that get left out when positives and negatives of artisanal mining are considered. So big mining, it's not all bad. It does provide some employment. In a lot of uh, instances, they provide a safer and better working environment for their workers, bringing in health and safety. But at the same time, you've also got big mines tend to also create a lot of environmental damage. So I suppose who draws the line of what is good and bad. Yeah, 100%. And out of all of that, some numbers, you've got 40 million artisanal miners around the world directly employed. You've got 240 million people indirectly employed. So you've got, say, 280 million people that are directly and indirectly involved with artisanal mining around the world. That's about 3% of the world's population. Now, if you exclude the developed world from that and just say there's 280 million people working in the third world, then the percentage goes up from 3% to maybe 6 or 7% of the third world are actually 
employed in artisanal mining. To give you some perspective on that, if you look at large-scale mining, the numbers are roughly is about 7 million people employed in large-scale mining around the world. So when you weigh up, and, and you also touched on environment, it was interesting, I got slammed a while ago by a lot of the sort of true believers. And the mantra in large-scale mining is that artisanal mining is bad for the environment. And look, in my experience, I've seen good and bad in on both sides of the equation. So I've seen environmental destruction in artisanal mining. But, you know, if you look at large-scale mining, you've got Fly River, you've got Bougainville, you've got Samark. I've seen Tails Dam's collapses in the Congo. Like, I've seen what happens in my native Pilbara here in Western Australia. Everything's not clean on the large-scale mining side either. And that, you know, all I'm saying is I'm not criticising one or the other, but we need to have balance in the equation. And I can't say that large-scale mining, if you take the totality of large-scale mining and you compare that with the totality of artisanal mining, I cannot say with any certainty that large-scale mining is better environmentally than that it is in artisanal mining. Now, let's take a step back. You mentioned that you categorize artisanal miners into three categories. Could you just define that for us, the three categories of artisanal miners? I came up with my own segmentation in terms of saying, well, you know, I'm a photographer. What do I want to achieve with this project? And so the answer to that is to bring awareness to the subject of artisanal mining to help raise awareness about the subject of artisanal mining so that better decisions can be made about the lives of 3% of the world's population. We have at the moment this responsible sourcing movement that came out of, it was initiated by the Obama administration, I think back in 2010 with the um, Section 1502 of the Dodd-Frank Act. So that's led to this responsible sourcing push around the world that is concerned about how materials and the like are produced for consumption in the developed world. So literally all of the biggest companies of the world are affected by what began with Dodd-Frank and then morphed into OECD, changes to the EU legislation, I think the start of this year. All of that has morphed into it with the impact that there's a lot of pressure on the biggest companies in the world to pay due attention to the quality of their supply chain. And what I mean by quality of the supply chain is how things are sourced, human rights abuses, conflict minerals, environmental destruction, whatever else. And so a lot of companies now, because they're required by legislation and otherwise to report on the cleanliness, inverted commas, of their supply chain, a lot of them are seeking to shift their sourcing away from third world economies to developed world economies because it's a lot cleaner. There's a lot less risk. It ticks the box of people saying, well, I know where to get it in this way. I know it's 100% clean. And one of the things I think that we discussed was that artistic Artisanal mining also exists within developed countries, wealthy countries, as it were, first world countries. And there's also artisanal mining within third world countries and the poorer countries. So you're saying, in effect, sometimes actually they're going towards the people who are trying to, let's say, get that label. Well, let's not just say get that label. Let's say there are a lot of genuine people that are trying to do good. They're trying to be responsible. It's not always just a label. But in effect, what they're doing is actually steering some of that business now towards artisanal slash ethical slash responsibly sourced mining within either developed countries or as you say sometimes there's a category of special chosen artisanal miners which are not really always 
against the people who really need that help? Yeah, so to close out that original question you asked, a lot of these big companies, are BMW's one, um, Apple to some extent is another, Tiffany is another that I've seen, have looked to shift their sourcing away from artisanally sourced supply chains to large-scale developed world mines. Now, the problem is with that, is what you're effectively doing is you're concentrating, you're, you're reconcentrating the wealth, the top 1% of wealth among the developed economies. And so when it comes to segmentation, I've said there's three segmentation approaches. One is that you can shift your sourcing away from artisanal mining completely to developed world supply chains. That's easy, saves a lot of problems. The second is um, in this world of artisanal mining, there's now responsible artisanal mining that's had the involvement of a number of people where they look to get in, cleaning up things like safety and what whatever else. There's examples in Colombia and wherever else. And the issue I have with that is that if you're diverting your sourcing away from existing non-responsible artisanal mining to responsible artisanal mining, you're still going to disenfranchise the people that you're moving your sourcing away from to the responsible sourcing. And then the third segmentation is that you have, rather than shifting your sourcing away from non-responsible ASM or artisanal mining, I'm saying companies should stay where they are, roll their sleeves up, as difficult as it is, and work with those supply chains to clean things up. And as part of cleaning those things up, that means coming up with transitional pathways to move people into other vocations. Because if you're going to, for example, if you decide to put a large-scale mine somewhere, then you're going to have a big employment drop-off. What happens to those people that get dropped off as a result of that that shift? So you've got issues around you know, child labour, education, all of that sort of stuff. Things that are very little understood in the developed world, but are very emotive and can often lead to knee-jerk reactions. To answer the, the last question that you asked around about artisanal mining in the developed world versus artisanal mining in the third world, you still have these sections of the, the population in the developed world where people just like to drop off the grid for whatever else and they like to have their own mining show. And those artisanal mining operations tend to be very small and negligible in terms of their contribution to the global ASM artisanal mining output. And what also happens that's interesting in this space is that beyond a certain GDP per capita, you won't find any artisanal mining other than those sort of true, you know, the ones that like to drop off the grid. And the, and the reason for that is that machines take over and then machines become the dominant force, in, force. in making those yes. operations work. So you actually want to employ even force. less people than, yeah. uh, than you originally intended, having even a bigger impact. Now, your project took you to quite a few countries, but I'm sure along the lines, you've seen some shocking things, perceivably some really treacherous working conditions, people working in unimaginable surroundings. I imagine that you've had to keep your cool to capture some of the subject matter. After all, you're the photographer and you've, you've got to stay objective to a point. Has there ever been a situation where you've just seen something that you just couldn't keep it together? Yeah, it was actually, it was after a shoot in India. We'd been working in Eastern India, got what I needed. And there was a place up in the Northeast that I'd heard about that had been getting a bit of publicity and wanted to go and see that. And it was controlled by the but most of the coal in India is controlled by the artisanal coal is controlled by the Indian coal mafia. So we went up to the northeast. We had to negotiate and sit down with the Indian coal mafia and you know go to their house and just show what I was about and all of that sort of stuff. Um, there was a it was a difficult time also because we we got put into martial law and so there were night curfews and if you went out in the street you either got shot or got stoned type thing. So we went and we did that and then at the end of every trip I just come up with something random and say to my fix 
just all right, I want to do this. It's not something I've ever thought about before I left or anything like that. It's just an idea that comes in my head. And I said to my fixer, I wanted to go and ride an elephant. So anyway, you could tease up this elephant. It was one of the best sort of mornings of my life. We're riding through the fog and saw a white rainbow. And then as we were coming out of there, it's the end of the trip. You're looking at your phone as you're going along in the car and saw something up ahead. And it just sort of, the instantaneous reaction was that something wasn't right. But then you look down, it must be right. And you look up again and it's like a, a rag doll flinging in the breeze on the in the middle of the road as we got closer i realized that what we're seeing and i'm by now i'm saying close we're sort of meters from uh i realized that it was the death of a really young child and it was particularly gruesome and it was like i'll never forget it, it was like the whole car the streets in the car just went quiet the, my driver banged his head with his palm three times i didn't say anything and your egg in the back didn't say anything we just kept driving no one said anything because there was nothing we could do to help the situation but for three days after that i wake up in the morning with a tear in my eye not being able to understand why and, and that was where i really learned about how life in the third world is so different to life in the developed world and i reached the conclusion i penned some notes at the end of the three days and i reached the conclusion that i was not glad for what had happened but i was glad that i hadn't been spared from seeing what had happened and that I wasn't a victim in it because you had all these people, you know, the immediate family, the kids that saw it, all of that sort of stuff. And and that's something that, you know, will stick with me for the rest of my life. It, it would be hard to think of anything worse in the theatre of war, if that makes sense. It's unbelievable. Uh, looking at your work, one of the uh, places you visited was the silver mines in Cerro Rico in Bolivia. I mean, the place is literally called the mountain that eats men. Surely that must have quite an impact. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And it's interesting tonight, I was talking to someone and I said, look, we've got an obligation to not pull down the shutters because we're worried about what we might see. We've got an obligation to lift the shutters and to see something so that that will encourage us to either help or make change or whatever else. It's not an acceptable answer. Pull the shutters down, do whatever it is, because that makes us as much a part of the problem rather than a solution. Now, Cerro Rico was a particularly difficult place. It was difficult photographically. It was difficult from a safety perspective. And it's probably one of the most dangerous mountains in history. Estimates put the number of deaths at Cerro Rico since mining began in 1545 to between four and eight million people. Wow. So when I was there, there were three to five a month dying. And what was happening? was that ambulances would come and whisk the deceased away in the middle of the night and take them to their village for burial or whatever else so that it wasn't publicised in Potosi at the base of Cerro Rico. And as I said to a colleague of mine, I said the smell of death is everywhere. And with Cerro Rico, I worked out there were about six or seven ways that you could die. So again, I'm, what I'm doing, I was there for six weeks, but these miners are going in every day. And, and even my fixers, the people that were assisting me, were scared about going to mountain so every morning you'd wake up and you'd be in the shower or whatever and you'd be wondering whether you're going to come out what is dangerous here is it the environment is it people committing crimes trying to get somebody else's silver what is actually causing the death there yeah so in in the context for me it was i was warned on the first day on the mountain on the second day there are bad people there and they will kill you and i fortunately didn't i did run into one guy that i knew that if i went into his mind that i probably wouldn't come out but for the miners and the work 
we were doing. Cerro Rico is, uh, when mining began there, was about 4,832 metres high. And in the space of, since 1545, the mountain had dropped from 4,832 metres to something like 4,792 metres. So it dropped 40 metres in height. And the reason for that was it was like a piece of Swiss cheese. You had so many uh, shafts inside the mountain, most of them not mapped. And the mine, and the mountain was collapsing in on itself. And then as you, when you went into the mountain, the guys were bringing the ore out. Um, they were bringing the ore out in these ore cars that weighed anything between one and a half and two and a half tonnes fully loaded. And so you had two to three people pushing each of these ore cars along rails, both in and out. And there was only one set of rails going into each mine. So what would happen, and the, and the mine would only be, I'm guessing, probably just over a metre wide. The, the portal would be just over a metre wide. And so as empties were going in and loaders were coming out, if they were going to meet, the empties had to drop their wagon off the rails and into an alcove. And the alcove would be every 50 metres or so. And then the fully loaders would come out. And the, just the noise of the smashing of the ore cars onto their side to allow a loader to come out was just, you know, your ears were getting smashed. Uh, there were a couple of, uh, one guy lost two legs, I think, when an ore car came off going around a corner just as it got out of the mine just before I got there. There was, because of the movement of those ore cars at speed, there was the risk of crushing accidents and death. So because two, one and a half, two and a half tonnes, that's the Toyota Land Cruiser just about. And you're in a really small area, so you, you've got to be, I'm not a morning person, but nine o'clock in the morning, you'd enter mine and, and you had to be on your game because if you weren't, you got cleaned up. Um, on top of that, you had rock falls inside the mountain. So the first day I was inside the mountain, there was a pipe blue just next to me and I thought it was a rock fall and I just hit the bolt like I'd never, instinct took me out. You could fall off ladders into voids. There were blasting accidents, explosions, deadly gases. I'm missing a couple of other things. And then silicosis, which killed so many people. Yeah, Sarah Rico was a really, really sobering and difficult thing, but it showed the lengths that, and this is the key tenets of my work, is that it's all about the human quest for a better life. It's these people sacrificing the life they could be living now for the prospect of a better life. They're, you know, they're sacrificing a comfortable life now so that their kids can have a better education or their, their wife can have a better house or you know, whatever else. So perceivably, I mean, you've just told the most harrowing, and it's nothing short of horrible sounding, first of all, location, the most horrific working conditions. So one would, I'd say the gut instinct of anybody would say, well, you know, I don't want to buy from people and working. So the poor people are, are being forced to work in such conditions. How can we possibly support this? And that I think is the big question here is that you hear this you see this through the visuals of your work and then you think, well, how could I possibly help perpetuate this? But it's the ultimate catch-22 because if you don't, their existence is perceivably even worse? Yeah, so the issue with it is that assumption many big companies make, many, many people around the world make that have any idea about artisanal or have heard of it or whatever, is that these people are forced to do this type of work. That's not been my experience. My experience has been most of the miners that I've seen, the exception being the coal people in India, most of the people that I've seen choose to do this work because it pays roughly three times, you know, say three times more more than what they would otherwise earn in the fields and the farm. And what was interesting, I saw a great analogy the other day. How can we have the right or how is it fair? You've got all these people at the bottom of the pyramid being told by the people at the top of the pyramid how they should live their lives. And 
these people are choosing to do this and they're choosing to do this because they want to get ahead for their families and whatever else. Is it up to us with all this money and all this other stuff to turn around and say to them, well, actually, no, you can't have that because it's not safe for you? a very sobering point i suppose it's what we can live with and what yeah we're in no position to preach unless we walk literally in their shoes and i don't think 99.9 percent of the population of the world would dare even enter such a situation i mean after what you've just described it's easy to preach i think is the is the long and short of it it's difficult to put yourself in somebody else's shoes well look in we have the metaphorical artisanal miners in every society in in the developed world and those artisanal miners are office workers doing 80 hours a week in a job that they hate. Cleaners doing jobs that they hate. Labourers, fly in, fly out. Miners are oil and gas workers flying to mines or to the oil and gas rigs because that pays three times more than what they could earn back in where they're living so that they can buy that bigger house or that bigger car or put the kids through the same education. Those people are doing exactly the same thing. So when you boil it down to its most basic, we're all miners at heart. We're all sacrificing the life we could be living now for the prospect of a better life, prospect in, in, in italics. I think that's a fantastic perspective. It's a great way of putting it. So at least in the jewelry and gemstone world, the entire supply chain, and I include myself, are being pushed to source more ethically. As I've said, I'm all for doing good, ensuring people get less hurt, uh, people are get, got better wages, working conditions. But is the push towards sustainable and ethically sourced products pushing more business towards big minds and big corporates and therefore hurting the very artisanal people we're trying to help? Or are we hurting the people who actually need it most? In, in other words, so you could say it's the lesser of two evils. Ultimately, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't because we're in a scenario where consumption is not going to stop. As humans, we always just want more. So either we help the poor artisanal miners, uh, but they stay in these conditions or we move away to big corporate and then we put these guys out work we can't really win so rather than call it ethically sourced or responsibly sourced or whatever because again you look at the artisanal mining in ghana for example and i saw the pictures that, that you shared i mean there's still some degree of environmental impact you know should we be taking a step back and calling it the most for lack of a better term the most ethically sourced rather than a blanket ethically sourced because the truth is unless you or let's say for example me i, I deal in gemstones and jewelry unless i literally get on a plane go to wherever it is in Africa or Asia or Australia or whatever it is, get a spade and a shovel and start digging myself that I can say, right, I did a hard day's labor. I dug this up myself. I know exactly where it's from. That to a degree is 100% ethically and responsibly sourced, presuming that I didn't cause any sort of real environmental damage. Anything else is just deluding ourselves that there's really a purity to ethically and responsibly sourced. It's just the least evil done. Yeah, I, th I think there's some good points in there. I think this concept of purity in ethical source, it's a bit like a, an illusory goal down the track, if you know what I mean, because, you know, what is ethically sourced? And at the moment, in what I believe or what I'm seeing is we've got these concepts of traceability and certification and whatever else, and they sound great terms, and they're great to sort of incorporate into your marketing positioning. Who are we really benefiting with all of that? Are we really benefiting the people on the ground, or are we benefiting the big corporates and their brands? Perhaps we're That's just easing out our own conscience. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the concern that I have. So I see seven three percent of the world's population in the artisanal miners. And I think to myself, they're the people that you know I'm concerned about. If we shift our sourcing away from these people, what's the plan B? So where do they go to work? How do their kids get educated? Even more importantly than that, how do their kids get fed? And if we want to have all the stuff, this certification, traceability, all of the stuff that sort of wraps around that responsibly sourced, if we want to have all of that, then the end, the people that we say we're trying to benefit must be seeing some of the benefit. And at the moment, one of the concerns that I have is that, you know, you've seen since Dodd-Frank in 2010, you've, you've seen billions of dollars poured into this industry called responsible sourcing. Now, you think about that, there's a lot of consultants running around, there's a lot of auditors, a lot of people in big companies getting employed, but how many of those billions of dollars actually flow through to people on the ground? And what changes have we seen with those people on the ground? And in my experience, I can only talk from what I've seen, I haven't seen too much change on the ground. Hmm. Let's try and end on a slightly more positive note here. In your opinion, because you've seen things that nobody else has, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but let's say me, I'm a Western do-gooder. Okay, I really want to create a positive impact. I want to make a difference. What would you say, what would the common man need to do, or the common woman, before I get into a whole gender argument, what would (laughs) a responsible, ethical, uh, reasonable person, what do they need to do? And rather than just sling buzzwords and sort of placate their own conscience, what do they do to make a real difference? What should I be doing to make a positive change? Oh, look, I think it comes back to what you said in a podcast the other day I was listening to. In the gem business, it's hugely dependent on trust. The, the reality is even if these people wanted to investigate um, supply chains themselves, unless they get on a plane and go and have a look at something, I'd love to say they're pissing in the wind, but I probably can't say that. But no, you can. We have an explicit label on the, on the podcast. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Um, they're, they're poking around in the dark. So they need to be able to rely on, I think, the people that they purchase from to be able to sort of do a lot of that verification because those people haven't got it. It's very, very difficult for them to do it on their own, almost impossible. It's a matter of trust. Trusting the people you're dealing with, liking the people you're dealing with and and getting a feel for the people you're dealing with and knowing that they're doing their best to ensure that the gem or diamond or whatever it is they're supplying to you has been, inverted commas, responsibly sourced, taking into account the recognition of the labour that artisanal mining provides, the, the kids that it feeds the education that it can provide for the kids, all of that sort of stuff. And then the quality of the gem and all of that sort of stuff. For sure. Well, Hugh, I'm mindful of the time because we're around about after 11 o'clock Perth time, if I'm not mistaken. And I definitely want to invite you again in the future to discuss more about this topic and about your work. So before I send you off to bed, I want them to take down the following details and I want them to go to the following links, which we will share in the podcast description. But First of all, go and check out Hugh Brown, photographer, Cruelest Earth on YouTube. I think that's stop number one because that will really sort of paint the picture. After that, second, go and check out Hugh's website, which is www.hughbrown.com as well as cruelestearth.com. And please make sure you support Hugh. He's got a fantastic range of prints. He's got a fantastic range of books, all of his work. Please try and buy these things, sponsor him so that he can continue bringing these sort of revelations to us and and continue with his projects. And uh, last but not least for all you millennials out there or wannabe millennials, go to Instagram and go (laughs) and follow Hugh on at hbrownofficial.com. 
and check out some of the most incredible shots you've ever seen. Hugh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Promise me at least that you'll come on again. Tell us all about your adventures. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Ariel. Thanks for coming on. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in again and listening to my podcast. I hope you learned something today and I hope at the very least you take away some questions and before you act, consider who it is you're helping out there and who it is that you're hurting. If you found this interesting and entertaining, please do follow me for future episodes and share this podcast with friends, family and colleagues and please subscribe. Just click the button, subscribe and it will be easy to hear future episodes. Please also leave a comment or question if you can and if you have one, I'll do my best to answer or perhaps even make a future episode out of it. This has been Gems and Jokes with Ariel Tivon. Have an awesome day.